the goodness of God. A God who wants us to know him. A God who made us in his image. A God who longs for fellowship with us. Can you believe it? A God who holds his arms out and says, Come unto me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden. A God who wants to run towards you. A God who looks for the prodigal coming back. A God who longs to forgive. A God who loves to to look in the eye and show nothing but grace. A good, good God. That's who he is. And he's a God who wants to show us the secret of joyful living. That's our title for this morning. And I thought that was a good title because I think we all kind of want to know that secret. If we're honest, we want to know how to live a joyful life in a world that hasn't much joy in it. In a world that's contaminated with evil and sickness and brokenness. Bereavement. A a world that's full of death and, and trouble. And yet in the midst of it. The miracle is that we can know the joy, the joy that only God can give in the worst of situations, that God can come and give us a peace and a joy in the very eye of the storm. And so we're going to continue looking at this story in John's Gospel, chapter 8. Last week, we uh, sorry, we need to actually look at the last couple of verses in chapter 7, because these are the verses that uh, remind us of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Just a little resume quick to get you back up into where we're going to continue. Last week we saw that Jesus had gone up to the Feast of Tabernacles. We saw that in in John chapter 7 verse 10. And we saw that the word tabernacle means to dwell. And this feast was to remind the children of Israel of how God had dwelt with them as they went through the wilderness. Do you remember in the exodus in the, in the, the journey out of Egypt? And Last week we saw that God had commanded them how to keep this feast. And we looked at two different ways that they kept the feast last week. I'm going to remind you of those now. But we're going to look at the third way today. And I believe there's something about the Feast of Tabernacles that has a very present application for us today. So just reminding ourselves that the first thing God had told them to do was to build booths or huts to live or dwell in during the seven days of this feast. Uh, And we reminded reminded ourselves last week that this still happens across the world. That in apartments in New York and in in places out in in all arts and parts of this world, Jewish people still build these huts with with branches and, and choose to have meals in those huts or maybe even sleep in them to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, which reminds them that God took them safely out of Egypt. And it reminds them of how there's nothing... Uh, really to put your faith in this world except the living God. And so the Jewish people still keep that uh, that feast every year, round about September, October time, depending on the Jewish calendar. And the first thing we saw last week, and I want to remind you of this week, is that if we want to know the secret of joyful living, the secret of joyful living is in being in God's presence. God was present with them as they came through the wilderness. He actually lived in a tent in a tabernacle. That's why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And when I was a young girl, about 21, I remember coming on this verse. And I remember this verse grabbed me so much that I learned it off by heart. And I've never forgotten it. And uh, I want to repeat it to you because I think it is a verse that is laden 
with the goodness of God. And it's the last verse in Psalm 16. And it says, you will show me the path of life. That really grabbed me at that time. You will show me the path of life. The next bit goes, in your presence is fullness of joy. And I remember I've been a 21-year-old, that grabbing my heart. In his presence is fullness of joy. And then the last bit, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. See, we forget sometimes that God has laden up pleasures for us. And God takes pleasure in you and he wants to give you pleasure. And so that verse was very, very meaningful to me. And of course, the Feast of Tabernacles remind us that God present himself. He, he chose to travel with his people and he still chooses to do that. In fact, he's actually come into us at the moment of salvation. He comes to dwell in us. And he makes us living tabernacles. And so we can experience this joy as we carry the presence of Christ in our daily walk. When you're doing the dishes, when you're out mowing the lawn, when you're at your work, he's with you. And he wants you to know his joy in his presence. I just read this week about how Brother Lawrence had chose to go and do dishes in a mundane job. Just chose to do dishes and became famous for his constant appreciation of the presence of God. Wrote books about what it means to live with a conscious knowledge that you're doing life in the presence of God. That is where the fullness of joy comes, ladies. When we, when we take it by faith, when we grab it by faith, this is the truth, he's with me. Right now, he's with me, his presence. He loves me, he's with me. He'll never change, he'll never stop loving me. He's with me. That presence is so beautiful. That's where one of the secrets of joy is. That was the first one we mentioned last week. And then we saw last week that as well as the booths, as well as making these huts, every morning of the festival, a priest, followed by a crowd of people, would come down from the temple, down to the Pool of Siloam, and we go to where the Pool of Siloam is every year when we go to Jerusalem, and you can see it's close to where the temple was. And when the priest comes down to, came down to the Pool of Siloam, they don't do this nowadays, of course, but back in biblical times, uh, with tremendous joy and with music and all the people around him, he would come with a great big golden pitcher and he would dip the pitcher into the water of the pool of Siloam and as he would draw it up, he would repeat a verse of scripture from Isaiah 12 verse 3 and he would say, Therefore with joy we shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And uh, of course, this, would, this was a remembrance of how in the wilderness again, how God had brought water out of the rock. And so the children of Israel would remember that he was the God who could quench their thirst, that he was a God who was coming with salvation. They were still waiting for this Messiah to come and bring salvation. And they, they recognized that the picture of taking the water out of Siloam was a picture of how God wanted to pour out his salvation on his people. And the amazing thing is that, that was, the water came out of the rock. And I just put in your notes here that in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 4, 1 to 4, that it actually tells us that the rock symbolically was Christ. We're told that in the New Testament. I'm just not making that up. That's the truth. When the water came out of the rock, it was a picture of how Christ, the flood, the waters of salvation, the living waters that Jesus spoke to the woman at the well about. 
that he would that they would come out of him and come and flow over us and so we remember that uh, not only is joy found in the presence of God but we find that joy is to be found when we come to drink from Jesus and we looked last week at the timing that as this was happening for seven days of the feast can you imagine every morning the priest is doing this for for seven mornings in a row he's coming down and all the people are cheering as he as he takes up the water and, and speaks out well this is the water from the wells of salvation and it says at the at the end of the feast on the on the great day the last day of the feast Jesus chooses to stand up and what does he cry he cries out if anyone thirsts let him come on to me and drink what was he saying he was saying I'm the rock I'm the one that you all got the drink from in the wilderness and here I am I'm the Messiah he was actually saying to the people I am the Messiah I have kept my word I have come I am here to give you the waters of salvation what an amazing picture the timing of Jesus speaking these words is incredible. And he still speaks them today. If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And listen, I believe there could be some thirsty souls here this morning. I believe some of you are thirsty for a draught of the living water. I'll tell you, there's nothing or no one in this world can satisfy that deep yearning that's in you. Was it Pascal said that in every one of us there's a, a vacuum that nothing but God can fill. And in all of us there are times when we are just desperate for we don't know what. And whenever you feel like that, you need to get to Jesus and you need to say, Lord, I need you to give me a drink of your living water. What is it? What is it? What does it what does it mean to drink of the living water? It's the Holy Spirit. Because remember we saw last week, let me read to you from the end of of, uh, of, of chapter seven, John seven. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God wants to have, have that he wants to pour it into you so that you can pour out others around you he wants you to be a carrier of the living waters and then it goes on to say that jesus said this because he spoke concerning the spirit from whom those believing in him would would receive for the holy spirit was not yet given because jesus was not yet glorified but the holy spirit we know has come and he's here and he wants to pour out a fresh draft for you to drink he wants you to go out of here today feeling refreshed feeling that something in your inner being has been quenched. I can't do that, but the Holy Spirit can. And if you ask the Holy Spirit to come and give you a drink, ask the Saviour, ask Jesus. He says, he says, he is the one who will give you that drink. We need to remember that the secret and satisfaction of life is to drink deeply from Christ's Holy Spirit. I remember when I was a young girl, I remember often uh, experiencing joy in the presence of God. And no doubt it was the Holy Spirit because at the moment of salvation you are sealed. When you ask Jesus to be your saviour and to come into your heart as your saviour to forgive your sin, at that moment you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So you have the Holy Spirit from the moment that you're saved. And throughout my earlier life, right up through my teens and twenties and thirties I often experienced the joy of the Lord in my spirit but you know it was only whenever I hit hard times it was only when I was at my lowest 
and in my late 40s and coming into my 50s that I had an experience that was over and beyond anything I had ever experienced where in the midst of the greatest sort of difficulty and, and dark time in my life where I had an experience where the Holy Spirit poured over me in a fresh way and I realised that he wasn't confined to a box. I was coming in this morning in the car park and we were laughing because I was going to have to get this car inside the box because the world says you can't go outside the box. But listen, God says go outside the box. God says, I'm a God of the extraordinary. I'm a God who will do something that you never expected. I'm a God who will meet you in ways that you never dreamed of. I experienced that, girls, and I want to tell you that you can experience it too. I want to tell you he's a God who can meet with you in the darkest time of your life. He can come and he can meet with you in such a way as to refresh you to the very deepest core of your being. The Holy Spirit is wonderful. And he's waiting for us to come and ask him to be our helper. Jesus said he would come alongside us, be the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. Jesus said he would be our helper. He would be our counsellor. He would be our comforter. Do you need to be comforted? You need the Holy Spirit. He's the one who will comfort in the deepest parts of your being. And I'll tell you anything else apart from him is a false comfort. He's the one who comforts in the deepest places. And so we see that he was the rock, the one that the waters flowed out in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. But today we're going to look again at this story in John chapter 8. And we're going to see the third thing that was needed in the feast. Because during this seven-day feast of tabernacles, there was something else they had to do. They had to have a light, an illumination. And here's what happened. I'm just going to read it from the notes. As well as the booths and the water drawing ceremony, the third important ritual was when the Jews erected great candelabra in the court of the woman in order to illuminate the temple. Imagine this, these great big candelabras with all the candles in them in the, the area of the temple which was known as the court of the woman. Apparently the Levite youths, that's the young priests, they came and they poured oil into the basins of the different branches of these candelabra. And guess what they used to act as wicks for the, for the candles to burn? They used the undergarments that were worn out that the priests used. So you know all in the Old Testament God had given particular undergarments that the priests were to wear underneath the priestly robes. Well once they were worn out they actually used those as wicks to put in uh, to act as a wick with the, these lights. And then because the temple was on a hill, the blazing candles illuminated the city below and kept burning all night until dawn. You get the picture? It was said that throughout the night, citizens could see the light from all over the city as it penetrated every courtyard in Jerusalem. And this continued for the seven nights of the feast. Now, in addition to this, apparently, I just wrote this in because I read it somewhere, apparently pious men, whatever that means, men who, who, who were known as being religious or, or men who, were, um, who loved God, uh, pious men of great skill danced, bearing torches. These would have been burning torches. And uh, apparently there was one particular man, called, he was a rabbi called Simeon ben Gamaliel, he said to have juggled eight of these things at a time as he was dancing around the place. 
while the Levite orchestra played. Can you get the picture of the, the joy and the extravaganza and the great picture of life and all of these things, these men dancing and all these lights being thrown up in the air? Do you get the sense of, of, of joyfulness? And it says that um, the Talmud, that's the Jewish writings, say of the temple illumination that accompanied, that accompanied the water-drawing ceremony, here's what, what they said. He who has not beheld this, this celebration has never seen joy in his life. And what was this meant to demonstrate? What was this meant to remind the Jews of? Well, it was meant to remind them the glorious blaze of fire was a remembrance of the Shekinah. That was the, the, the light, the mysterious light of God's presence. The pillar of fire by day and smoke by night that accompanied Israel throughout their wanderings. So all of these lights and all of this joyfulness was meant to remind them of, a, of how God travelled, not only travelled, made his presence with them through the wilderness, but how he actually provided light for their journey. And I just want to read a little verse in Nehemiah 9 where it says, You led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. He's a God who doesn't only presence himself with us, but he's a God who gives light to us as we journey on the road of life. So do you begin to get the picture of the joyfulness of this light, not just in his presence, not just in the rivers of living water of the Holy Spirit, but in the light that God brings to us, that there is joy in this light. And it goes on to say that this this ceremony of light, whilst it reminded them of the past and how they had journeyed out of Egypt, it was also a reminder of the future and what was yet to come. Because in Isaiah 9 verse 2, let me read this to you. This was a prophetic word that, is, that Isaiah had written. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shone. So this, this was to remind them that they were waiting for a Messiah who was going to shine his light on them even in their darkness. And folks, I'll tell you something. There's plenty of darkness in this world around us. And the enemy would try to put darkness over you. And he would try to bring you into the shadow of darkness. And God doesn't want that to happen. God wants you to walk in his light and in his love and in his life. Isaiah uh, 60 verses 1 to 3 say, Arise and shine, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. We need to be those who will not only walk in his light, but that we get up and we arise and we walk in his light. Walk in the glory of his light upon our lives. Because you remember, Jesus said that we are to be the light of the world. We are to carry this light. We are carriers of the light. And God wants us to experience that. And no wonder in Matthew 4, verses 15 to 16, it repeats Isaiah's prophecy, the people who sat in darkness have already seen a great light. God keeps his word. It was prophesied in Isaiah and came to pass in Matthew and in other places in the New Testament. And so here's the thing. All of these pilgrims were going through this, these rituals every day for seven days. 
and they didn't realise. They, they were looking at this light festival and they were remembering the prophecies that Messiah would come and that he would bring light and shine on their darkness. They knew it all in theory. They knew it all in their head. But they didn't realise that the one that was prophesied to come, the light of the world, they didn't know that he was already in Jerusalem and he was already waiting to come forward and to declare himself as the light of the world. And you know what, girls? Sometimes we're living in dark situations and we forget. We forget that the light of the world is in us. We forget that he can shine his light upon our paths. I, I just love uh, some of the verses from... Uh, from uh, Psalm 119. I wasn't going to read these later, but I'm just going to read them now because I believe that God wants you to know today if you're in a dark place that he can shine his light into your heart. I want to read this to you in the message. It's Psalm 119, verse 105. By your words, I can see where I'm going. They throw a beam of light on my dark path. I've committed myself and I'm, I'll never turn back from living by your righteous order. Everything's falling apart on me, God. Put me together again with your word. You see, his word shines light. And it shines light right here where you are. On your path. Path to your feet. But it also shines light up ahead so you can see where you're going. That's what that verse means. In the, in the Probably in your translation, it says... The way it, 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 um, it, the way it translates is that he will be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. So the lamp's for your feet where you are. He'd put the light around you right here and now, this moment. But the, 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 uh, the, that's the lamp, but the light is for the path up ahead. So you, can, you, you see where you're going and you see where you are. That's the kind of God that he is. He shines his light over you and he wants you to know the joy of that. So here's the thing. These pilgrims were celebrating the light of the world, but they didn't know that Jesus had already come in flesh and that he was actually with them at this feast. So that's kind of taken us to the end of the feast, to the end of all of these ceremonies and reminded us that, that this had all happened and Jesus had been present for the seven days and then the feast was over. But it's really important for us to look at what happened immediately after the feast because it's still tied into the feast. We're going to see, we're going to, am I speaking a bit in a riddle here? You'll see in a minute what I mean. So let's look at chapter 8 now and let's read what happened. But Jesus, this is, this is um, after, the, um, after the festival of tabernacles was over, chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. 
When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them. I want you to listen to this. This is immediately after this incident. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, do you see how these religious leaders had particularly brought this woman? Not that they had any concern or care for the woman. They simply wanted to use her to try and trap Jesus. They were trying to find a fault in him. And uh, it's very interesting that this woman could have been stoned in the law. If they wanted to enforce the law of Moses, they could have stoned her. So they were trying to trick him as to whether he would keep the law or not keep the law. Now, uh, I am just going to read this the way I wrote it because I think it would be the easiest way for me to explain it. But I think what Jesus did is very, very significant. Um, Let me read it to you and just try and concentrate on this. They were pressing Jesus to make a judgment. They were pressing Jesus to bring condemnation on this woman. But remember, Jesus said that he came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so they were looking for condemnation, and they were trying to, they were bringing her sin, if you like, into the light, and they were trying to expose her. That's what the enemy will do. He will try to bring shame upon us. And and God is not a God who wants to bring shame upon us. And so let me just read this to you uh, as to what I believe maybe was happening uh, when Jesus wrote on the ground. Could it be that Jesus was writing with his finger to enact the writing of the law on tables of stone with the finger of God at at Mount Sinai? Now that's just a wee thought. I'm not saying that's for sure. But I've often wondered that. As he wrote on the ground, on the dust, well, people often say, what was he writing? I wonder, was he writing and, and depicting, reenacting how God wrote the law with his finger at Mount Sinai on the tables of stone? We know that the law was broken. So could it be that when Jesus raised himself up and continued to write for the second time, that he was enacting how God had to rewrite the law after Moses broke the original tablets. That's quite a thought, isn't it? That that's what he may have been doing. But you see, whether we break the law or whether we don't, and we always do, because we can't keep the law. Only Jesus could keep the law. That's why it was a perfect sacrifice. We can't keep it. But whether we keep it or try to keep it, God's word remains the same. And that's why Psalm 119 is so beautiful because it speaks so much about God's word. And I put in two or three quotes about Psalm 119 because it says in in verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word or your law is settled in heaven. And the entrance of God's word or God's law gives light. Verse 130. And then 1 John 1 verses 5 to 9 says that God is light and then we've already read the verse in psalm 119 that god's word is a lamp onto our feet and a light onto our path and we as god's children 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16, that we are to let our light shine in the world. We are to be light carriers, bearers of God's light. And so I think it's not by chance, chance that at this particular moment where Jesus has written on the ground, and let me read to you what, the way it actually puts it in the message. I love this. I, just, I had to read this to you because I was so excited when I read it this morning. Here's what he said. Um, let, I'll just go back a little bit. They stood her in plain sight of everyone and said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Can you just imagine them grabbing this woman from somewhere? Somebody knew something about her. Pulling her out of the house, sir. Gra- grabbing her along the road. Can you just visualise what these men, the kind of men that they were, and these were religious leaders that simply wanted to expose. They didn't have God's heart. God's heart is to cover. God's heart is to love and to cover. These men wanted to expose and to shame. And so could you imagine them catching this woman somewhere and forcing her to walk with them and then throwing her into the, into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus And here's what they said. They stood her in plain sight and they said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses in the law gave orders to stone such persons. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so they could bring charges against Jesus. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. They kept at him, badgering him. See, they wanted him to say something that it would be against this one. They wanted to bring condemnation on her and they wanted to trap him. But Jesus straightened up and said, the sinless one among you, go first. Imagine, the sinless one among you, go first. Throw the stone. Bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Hearing that, they walked away one after another, beginning with the oldest. The woman was left alone. Jesus stood up and spoke to her. Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, Master. Neither do I, said Jesus. Go on your way. From now on, don't sin. Let me tell you something that Jesus Jesus had a love for this woman. And he knew her darkness. And he knew, he knew everything about her. He knew the kind of life that she had lived. He knew the circumstances that had led to her committing adultery. He knew everything about the man who was involved. He knew all the extenuating circumstances. He knew everything about it. These men wouldn't have known all the ins and outs. They'd, they just looked at what they saw and judged because we can't judge. We judge on what we see. And that's why God's word says that we should not judge others. Because we don't know all the background and we don't know all the evidence and we don't know all the circumstances around that situation and we should zip our lips. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the measure that you judge others, you'll be judged yourself. And so it's really important that we remember that. But these men wanted to expose her, but they were forgetting their own sin. They weren't a bit concerned about their own darkness. They just wanted to expose this woman. But Jesus stood up for this woman. Jesus Jesus spoke up for her. We have a saviour who knows the darkness of our hearts. I've written in your notes, he could see the darkness of this woman's heart. And he had come to the world to die for her sin. He had come to set this woman free. He knew all about her long before they brought this woman to him. I often said there's a particular pain, I believe, according to God's word, a particular pain around sexual sin 
We can read that. I haven't time to go into it now. But if you want to come and talk to me about that, I will talk to you about that. Because I believe it's a particular sin. Because sexual sin is actually the only sin that's talked about in the Bible as actually sinning against our own body. And it has a particular kind of pain. And Jesus wants to set us free from anything that would, the enemy would try to hang over us in relation to sexual sin. He wants, it's one of those things that people feel they have to cover and pretend very often and they feel they can't get free of it. But you know, Jesus wants to shine his light into your heart. And if there's shame from the past or something that the enemy would bring around you to hurt you or to stop you experiencing the joy of the Lord, then I want to say to you that God can shine his light into that darkest place and he wants you to know that his word to you today is, neither do I condemn you. Jesus died on the cross for all our sins to set us free and praise God that he did. And we have a saviour who longs to save us so that we can enjoy the light. And of course I just had to, uh, had to put in there a reference to Psalm 27, one of my favourite psalms and I believe this is another a great word for us this morning. The Lord, David said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear or dread? The Lord is the strength of my life. He's my refuge and my stronghold. Of whom shall I be afraid? We need to know that when the Lord is, the, is our light and our salvation, that he takes away fear. Whom shall I fear, said David? The Lord is my light and my salvation. And when we walk, when we come into the light and we confess our sins and we ask God to come and to save us and to, to give us the gift of his salvation, I tell you what, he can take away all fear of condemnation and the enemy can be powerless over our lives because when we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and you see when we know that our sins are forgiven there is no joy like that you know i was thinking this morning how even the angels in heaven throw a party and are full of joy and shouts of joy in heaven when one soul comes to jesus for salvation i wonder is there anybody in here today and you've been coming along and you've been listening to the word of god and yet there's something that you feel is missing in your heart that maybe you have never actually ever asked jesus to be your savior Boy, I would love this morning that that could happen. I would love this morning that you'd just come up and, and speak to some of us and tell us that you would just love to know him as your saviour. It's real simple, you know. You just come to him and step into the light and say, Lord, here I am, please save me. And he will come in by his Holy Spirit and he will live in you and he will bring his light into your life and you'll begin to experience what it means to live and walk and experience the light of God in your life. I'll tell you, that's where freedom is. We don't, there's no freedom in the darkness. You know, when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus way back, do you remember whenever we spoke in John's Gospel of chapter 3? Remember when Jesus had the experience of he met Nicodemus at night? Do you remember one of the things he said to them? He said, men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And you know, when we hang around in dark places and we try to cover up and keep darkness in our lives, we're actually just... We're just actually fellowshipping with, with evil. We're, we're giving space for the enemy to come in. Darkness, is, if, we, if we don't bring things into the light, we give room for the enemy to, to, make, to just make a torture of our lives. He can come in and torture us in the dark, but he can't touch us in the light. 
When we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, I tell you, we are free. We are set free. And God wants us to experience that freedom and that joy. He wants us to know the joy. God's love and light is the secret of joyful living. Ephesians 5 verses 2. Let me just read this reference to you as well because there's so much. I'd love when you go home, be great if you could take out the word yourselves and just go through and look at all the different references for light in the, in the word of God. I mean, uh, Romans Romans, this is a different one, I'm just saying this as I'm passing them away to Ephesians. Uh, Romans says that actually that the light uh, is actually our armour. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. So light is, is a wonderful place. It's not only a place of freedom, but it's a place where we are protected. But I want, I'm on my way here. I'm just turning over here to um, Ephesians 5. And let me just read to you a couple of verses from Ephesians 5. Here we are. I'm getting to it now. It says in verse 2, Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And then it goes down to verse 8, and it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And I believe today that as we experience that, that we begin to experience the joy of the Lord as our strength as we begin to walk in the joyful, the joyful living of being in the light. The Jewish religious leaders of Jerusalem had just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. They had witnessed the celebration of light, and yet they were living in darkness. They had missed the point. They were happy to condemn others, while they themselves walked in darkness. And so as we begin to wind up and finish for today, I want to just to remind you of these three things that the, the Feast of Tabernacle tells us about the joy of the Lord, about how to live a joyful life. What was the first one? The first one was that it's found in God's presence. The first one was that when we consciously remind ourselves that God is with us, and when we, when we, we trust him to, to keep his word, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And when we, we experience his presence in the mundane, as well as those lofty moments when you're at worship, maybe in church, and you have your hands up and you're going for it, and you feel his presence, you know you can feel it just as much as you're at the sink. I have known the times when I'm doing dishes, I've known the presence of God come on me, I've had to stop for a moment or two. God wants us to feel his presence. He wants us to be conscious of his presence, to live in his presence. And if we grieve him or if we, if we hurt him and we know we've sinned and we do that, we all do it, like let's make no mistake about it, then we just run back into the light again and we say, Lord, please just wash me. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I said that. I should, maybe, maybe I should have done that and I didn't. Lord, I'm sorry. We just bring it to him, bring it into the light and he'll just cleanse it and wash us all over again and we just know that sense of his presence again that's so powerful. I believe that we are created to feel and live in the presence of God. He made us in his image, and he wants us to live that way. Joy is experienced in the presence of God, but it's also experienced when we drink from the fountain of living waters. And this is that that's moment by moment, dependence in the Holy Spirit, asking for a fresh drink of the Spirit of God, knowing the Holy Spirit can help us and counsel us and comfort us and do all that we need. 
and that we would be, learn how to live drinking from the fountain of living waters. And lastly, that we would know the joy of being constantly in the light of God, walking with God in the light. I believe it's so important today that we, that we know that joy is possible, joyfulness is possible for us to experience, not just every now and again or every Sunday or maybe in some special occasions, but actually joy is meant to be experienced every day. That's why in the book of Nehemiah it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We need the joy of the Lord, ladies. Do you agree with me? Yes. We need to know what it is to, to feel this joy of not being condemned, this joy of knowing we're forgiven, the joy of knowing that Christ is in us and with us, that he hasn't changed his affections towards us. I want to tell you right now that the enemy will come and tell you, uh, you know, you did that wrong and this wrong and God doesn't love you and he's offended with you. He'll try to stop you enjoying his presence. You need to know that's not true. When you confess your sins, they're gone. And actually God doesn't even, he chooses not even to remember them. And if you're going on about those sins, you're actually grieving the Holy Spirit because the word of God says that when you confess your sins, they're gone. And, and I believe the joy that God wants us to have is a moment-by-moment moment experience. And yes, there'll be dips and we'll have all kinds of situations, but we can run to him and we can actually overall have this joy in our hearts. Let me read this to you. Joy at the back here, well-named joy. Uh, give us uh, Jerry and I these books, Salt and Light by Chris Tigreen. And yesterday's really uh, hit me, today's hit me as well, but this one I just felt I had to read from. Joy is the serious business of heaven. That's what C.S. Lewis said. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is high on God's list of priorities for us. Anything we do that does not include joy, or at least lead to it, misrepresents God's nature. He is not sitting in heaven, heaven sweating over our financial difficulties, our relationship problems, or our desperate need for fulfilment. Never has he looked at our problems and said, oh no, what am I going to do? How can I possibly fix this one? No, God sees the end of things from the beginning. And that's a verse, that's a word of God, Isaiah 46, verse 10. God sees the end of things from the beginning and is not in suspense about what is to come. He is already relaxed about the outcome and you can be too. One of your primary assignments in life, before paying bills, before accomplishing your tasks or your dreams, instead of stressing out your friends and family with all of your worries, the one thing you should do is to carry the simple joy of heaven everywhere even into the dense, dark places of the world. To do so, you will have to be rooted in that other realm which is untouched by the stresses and conflicts of the world. Insist on your joy, your peace, your simplicity, being unflappable and unflagging. Represent the heart of your father by reflecting his delight and his assurance that all will be well. We need to take that in and believe it. The prayer is, Father, I lose sight of your joy in the midst of my problems, even when I know it is to be true. Let me not be deceived by my circumstances. Lift my eyes above the fray and out of the moment to see and embody the joy of your kingdom. 
Amen. There is a joy even when things are tough that only God can give. And it comes from just that place of knowing that he is with us, that he has paid the price for us to have the joy, that he is, he is watching over us, that he can take, he's greater than we are, that he is looking at the big picture, that he is working behind the scenes, that he is a miracle working God. And that song at the moment that's going out is one of my favourite songs. You must play it some week soon. What way does it start, Jerry? Waymaker. God is a waymaker. Miracle worker. Promise keeper. Light in my darkness. That's who he is. Let's believe it, that he's a miracle worker, a way maker. He can make a way where there seems to be no way. That's the kind of God that he is. He's the one that we look to. He's the one that we trust. He's the one that gives us the fullness of joy and satisfies the deepest longings of our heart. And nothing or no one can do that except him. In Jesus' name we claim it. Father, I pray that you will meet and encounter every one of us in this room. I pray this morning, Lord, that we will have a, a moment where we will drink a draught of your living water, where we will have a fresh revelation that you are with us and in us, and we are walking tabernacles where we can experience your presence and drink from the, your fountain of living waters and experience the light of God, the light of our salvation, where we know no fear, for the enemy has no rule over us, and where we walk, Lord, with you walking into all the plans and purposes of our lives. Father, thank you that you're in charge of it all. You're sitting on your throne and we commit everything and every lady into your hands this morning and pray for a fresh revelation of your love and of your light and of your kindness and goodness. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. He's the one we can sing about it. I'm praying and believing that we will find a new song in our mouth. The psalmist said that he's lifted us up out of the Mary clay, out of the horrible pit, and he's set our feet upon the rock, and he has established our goings, and he has put a new song in our mouth, and that many will see it and hear it and fear and trust in the Lord. May you go out of here singing a new song of praises and thankfulness to God because you know what? When we thank God for even the bad stuff, something happens. Something happens that releases the joy because we're saying, God, I give it to you and I'm trusting you, you'll turn it for good. And you know what? He's a God who wants to release joy and he wants you to be strong in that joy and he wants us to run this race that he's put before us and each of us are in different parts of that journey, but God is with us, and he wants to give us fresh drink as we go along. You know, the athletes, they stop every so often, they get the drink of water and on the go. That's what God wants to do, constantly refreshing you, pouring in the water of his love, of his Holy Spirit. He wants you to know the joy of his salvation, and he wants you to experience his presence, and he wants you to know the freedom of living in the light. There is nothing like living. You've got something between someone else and yourself, Go and bring it into the open and get it done with. Don't allow darkness in any part of your relationships or your living experience. Walk in the light as he is in the light. And you'll experience a whole new realm of what life can be like. And the joy of the Lord will go with you. Bless you. I won't see you next week, but bless you. I'll be thinking about you all. God bless.